0: Yare Mambonilla was born in Puerto Rico. She's a professor and a writer. I'm
1: in San Juan, in a neighborhood called Country Club.
0: She says, if you came to this island as a tourist, you might not see the island the way she does. Your hotel would have a generator. Your resort would be clean. But in her neighborhood, since Hurricane Maria, everything's changed.
1: Well, if you walk down the street at night, you'll see very little because the streetlights are still not working. And if you walk down during the day, you'll still see a lot of buildings that their paint was eroded after the hurricane and that hasn't been repaired. Still a lot of boarded up windows. Some of the fast food restaurants, their signs have gone. So there's just like an empty pole without a sign.
0: Outside the city, Yarimar has met people who are still living under tarps.
1: There's bridges that were washed away that haven't been repaired also. Um, so it, outside of San Juan, it's much, much worse.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, like, you're describing a pretty desolate situation, but you're in the middle of the city. Yes, yes. The weird thing about this desolation, though, is that it's not the whole story of what's going on in Puerto Rico.
1: Most Puerto Ricans, they're, they're just helping themselves. They're not really waiting for either the local government or the federal government. They've already begun the recovery and, and are moving forward with it.
0: In a way, it sounds exciting, what you're describing, even though it's also kind of terrifying.
1: There is something exciting about it.
0: That makes the conversation about Puerto Rico that's happening back on the mainland all the more frustrating for Yatamar
1: president today continued his gross, shameful vendetta against the people of Puerto Rico.
0: Puerto Rico has been taken care of better by Donald Trump than by any living human being. And the president says that uh, Puerto Rico got $91 billion for the hurricane. That's not true. Why is he using that number?
1: They're getting $91 billion that are in pledges. To oh, get that's not that, what the president says. Democrats are blaming
0: Republicans for not passing a spending bill that would give more aid to Puerto Rico. Meanwhile, Republicans are saying they're just doing what President Trump wants. And President Trump is saying the sort of stuff he usually says, that he treats Puerto Rico better than anyone, but just doesn't want to send the territory any more money.
1: Well, people are rolling their eyes, but they're obviously talking about it. I mean, politics is is, people say it's the national pastime here. So we definitely um, like to talk about it. Part of of the problem with talking about this in in the U.S. media is that it's easy to take a kind of good guy, bad guy kind of stance and think that Trump was just disrespectful to the to the hardworking local government and the local politicians. But the local politicians have also really failed the people of Puerto Rico. You sound frustrated. Well, I think it's frustrating. Yeah, definitely for Puerto Ricans when we feel that we're being used as a political football by both sides. Today
0: on the show, Yadamar is going to take us inside Puerto Rico itself. As Congress debates how to help this island recover, it's worth asking what the people who live there actually want and trying to listen to them. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When Yarema talks about what we get wrong when we think about Puerto Rico, she's saying that we've forgotten the history here, so that even when the facts are right, the interpretation is all wrong. Like when President Trump says the government of Puerto Rico hasn't managed federal aid very well.
1: Well, on the one hand, the when Trump and others talk about Puerto Rican politicians as corrupt, unable to manage their affairs, on the one hand they're dog whistling and and building on racist rhetoric about, you know, welfare queens and and how minorities aren't deserving of, of public assistance. But at the same time there is definitely problems of corruption in Puerto Rico and there has been a mismanagement of aid both by the local government, but also by FEMA. Um, both have been embroiled in, in scandals of not distributing uh, goods, of, of having found supplies months after the fact that had rotted. So there is, of course, something to that fact of, of there being problems of local uh, corruption and mismanagement. However, when Trump... You know, makes reference to those. It's not really to to step in and help, but rather to just like further entrench these these ideas about Puerto Ricans as undeserving of of assistance.
0: Hmm. I'm wondering if you can just lay out the structural issues at play here. Like there are legal issues. In 2015, the U.S. Supreme Court sort of said, yes, Puerto Rico can't make any laws without congressional approval. Right.
1: Yes, 2016 marked a turning point in the relationship between Puerto Rico and the United States because before that, since 1952, the position of the United States was that Puerto Rico had self-government and a level of sovereignty. And this was why they convinced the United Nations to remove Puerto Rico from the list of non-self-governing societies. So there was this idea that Puerto Rico had been decolonized. But in 2016, the United States itself reverses its position both through these Supreme Court cases in which it was made clear that Puerto Rico did not have sovereignty, that it was under the complete control of Congress, that it did not have self-government. And so that allowed the United States to impose a fiscal board. It allowed the United States to not fully apply constitutional rights to to the territories. But
0: having a colony, that's like not how I see myself as an American,
1: I know. And this in, in this moment, when everyone is, is suddenly upset and, and saying to the Republicans, oh, Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens. Puerto Rico is, is the U.S. It's not a country. I feel like those assertions further... Uh, silence the fact that Puerto Rico is a colony, that the United States is an empire that has territories. When the United States is represented, it's always represented as a nation of states, not as an empire of states and territories, which is what it actually is.
0: Yeah, you're talking about this MSNBC clip that got out there in the last couple of days and in it, you have a Trump administration official who's talking about Puerto Rico. He's making these allegations of mismanagement. And he's constantly referring to Puerto Rico as that country. We
1: have not come to $91 billion with all we've done in that country. We have had a and then
0: you have the anchor who's interviewing him. You know, she kind of gets involved and says... Well, it's not a, it's not a country. This is these are U.S. citizens. I'm answering the question. The president says Puerto Ricans are taking from the USA. Puerto Rico is part of the United States. People who live in Puerto Rico are U.S. citizens. You're rolling for, your for, eyes. And I don't know why you're rolling your eyes. Because and it sounds like what you're saying is that both of them are wrong.
1: Well, both of them are wrong and both of them are right. <laughs> I guess I'm saying it's, it's more complicated because What's more accurate to say, rather than to say Puerto Rico is not a country and and Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens, is to say Puerto Rico is a colony. Puerto Ricans are second class citizens.
0: I'm wondering if you can actually just like if I moved to Puerto Rico tomorrow, what are the rights I would lose?
1: You would lose the right to vote in the presidential elections because you would no longer be a resident of a state. You would be the resident of a territory. And you would also lose some. if you had certain benefits like Social Security, you would lose some of your benefits and they would be lower. And there have been... um, court cases where people who have um, moved back to Puerto Rico they've sued the government because of the reduction in their benefits and th- th- there was debate about whether this was a, a, a racist law and uh, some people argued that it was not because it was not discriminating against certain people but against the place <laughs> you know so that if you were in a territory you lost your rights others have argued that since disproportionately the people who live in Puerto Rico are Puerto Ricans that that is in fact, a form of, of racial and ethnic discrimination.
0: Hmm. And what's interesting to me about your research is that you really go back to Democrat, Republican, everyone, how everyone has done this just in different ways. Like you talk about how Hillary Clinton talked about being able to replace the governor of Puerto Rico at any time. Like she was apparently, you know, sort of stating like, oh, th- we just this is a colony.
1: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I think is, is, is funny about how people get so riled up with Trump in the, in the United States. But here in Puerto Rico, we don't get as riled up because we see it within this long history of, of exclusion, of colonial treatment. It really is just a kind of more naked and, and overt statement and expression of what other presidents have also expressed in private meetings or through their policy.
0: You know, right now, this fight over Puerto Rico and Washington is about aid, and it's about how much money goes to Puerto Rico. But I wonder, part of what I think is interesting about your research is that you're not just talking about the aid in terms of chunks of money, but how the chunks of money are being used. You've written a little bit about disaster capitalism, is what you call it, on the ground, and how it's reshaping Puerto Rico and how you've watched it kind of bloom after Hurricane Maria. You've told this story, and I wonder if you might tell it again, about a wealth advisor you met before Hurricane Maria and her sort of take on how money moves in Puerto Rico and, you know, what she sort of saw as opportunities.
1: Yeah, it was really chilling to me when Hurricane Maria made landfall because right before leaving Puerto Rico in that month, I had interviewed this wealth uh, financial advisor who had told me that things were getting better with the debt crisis, that money was moving, and that the only thing that was needed now was a hurricane. And so for me, that was just appalling, thinking about all the damage and destruction that a hurricane brought. But but for her, it was about accelerating everything that had already been put into place in terms of uh, loosening of regulations, of, of fast-tracking contracts, and being able to use federal funds to uh, generate a kind of short-term windfall for people who want to come and, and experience, you know, a, a kind of quick return. But what she wasn't thinking about was the people who I now see two years, almost two years after the storm, who are still living under, under tarps and, and have roofless homes. Mm. So there's this way in which it's imagined that a hurricane will improve the economy and inject money into the economy, but that money only services a, a small amount of people. and And there's still a great deal of suffering that comes as a result of that.
0: I wonder if you've talked to her in the months since the hurricane.
1: I did. I went and visited her after Maria, and she showed me how she had switched completely over to solar energy in her office. Um, That was the big lesson that she learned after Maria.
0: It sounds like she basically was bunkering down and using her money to kind of secure herself and not have to rely on the government.
1: Yeah so this is this is the pattern that I've seen a, a, among both uh wealthy expats, the self-described expats who are moving to Puerto Rico from the United States and also from elite Puerto Ricans is that there's a realization that recovery is not really happening quickly, that you can't count on public services, that there's still power outages, you know, water outages, all of this but rather than being concerned about that and investing back into the commons or you know strengthening the state, what they're doing is just hunkering down and creating their own private bunkers. So now all of these uh, populations, they have their solar panels, they have their water cisterns, they all have SUV trucks that can you know drive down these the bad streets that haven't been repaired and all their off-road vehicles, and so they're kind of ready for a slow recovery. But the the folks who can't afford to prepare themselves in that manner are the ones that are still living under blue tarps. Yeah,
0: I mean, what's interesting to me is um, at the same time we're talking about aid to Puerto Rico, like literally the same time there was a bill just introduced in Congress that would give Puerto Rico statehood. And of course, this has been under discussion for a long time. But I wonder if it's what the majority of Puerto Ricans want at this point.
1: Well, that's a very complicated question. Um, in in previous uh, results, plebiscite results, you can see that systematically there is a strong united sector of, of residents that want statehood. You, We can say about 45 percent. Um, but the, the rest of the population is not sure that they want statehood they're but they're divided in terms of whether they want independence, whether they want some other kind of political relationship to the United States that preserves U.S. citizenship and, and the kind of mobility that a U.S. passport allows, while at the same time changing the colonial relationship and having more sovereignty, more autonomy, and, and more ability to create other economic opportunities for Puerto Rico that aren't just dependent on U.S. funds and, and you know, uh, being a site of investment for U.S. corporations. Um, but but part of the problem that Puerto Ricans have with formulating what they want is because the United States has never made it clear what the possibilities are. For example, would statehood mean a quick end to the disparity in Social Security benefits and a raise in the minimum wage to close the gap that exists financially between Puerto Rico and, and the United States or not? And, and what would independence mean? Would it come with some kind of reparations for colonial history? Would it, would it come with U.S. citizenship or, or kind of preferred entry into the U.S. given that, that it was our imperial center? You know, these are questions that need to be answered by the United States first before Puerto Ricans can then really decide what they want. And it really irks a lot of people here that the United States repeatedly, a lot of politicians, um, they'll say, we support self-determination for Puerto Rico, whatever the Puerto Ricans want. But the, the, they make it seem as if Puerto Ricans are the ones that can't figure out what they want. But the truth is that the United States has never been clear what relationship it's willing to have with Puerto Rico in the future and what it's willing to offer, particularly in terms of reparations for colonial history.
0: Hmm. We talked a little bit about, you know, post-disaster investment and the accelerated investment in a place that's been hit by a disaster isn't unique to Puerto Rico. It's, you know, after Hurricane Katrina, you saw a lot of investment in New Orleans, for instance. What makes it different for Puerto Rico?
1: Well, what makes it different is that in Puerto Rico, you have the unique case of a, a disaster occurring right in the wake of already an economic crisis where already you had an austerity regime in place that that facilitated even more the acceleration of these policies because you already had the well-primed you know in a way for acceleration of contracts and and the quick move on in, in terms of creating charter schools for example that in new orleans that emerges after katrina here that was already happening and being put into place. So the privatization of services, uh, everything being routed towards foreign investment, that was already well underway here.
0: One, is it already appealing to do business in Puerto Rico because of tax laws and the fact that, you know, it's easy to make money
1: there? Absolutely. So you have you have the way it was primed by the debt crisis, but then you have the way it was already primed before that through the, the, the you know, century plus of colonialism to be a site of foreign extraction. The way Puerto Rico was set up as both a site of tax breaks and, and a, as a site of, of preferred investment for, for U.S. investors, um, which is what had led to the debt crisis to begin with. Just as, as 2016 was a turning point, in U.S. policy towards Puerto Rico, I think Maria might mark a turning point in terms of how Puerto Ricans view their relationship to the United States, where they realize that a lot of things that they thought were guaranteed are not guaranteed. Trump has made really laid bare the kind of imperial disdain that that the United States government has towards Puerto Rico. And so people keep referring over and over again to the paper towels that were hurled here, you know, how that's all the the United States has offered us is paper towels to clean up our own mess. And and the problem is that it's not just our own mess, it's a mess that the United States also created.
0: Yaramar, thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you. It was a pleasure.
0: Yaramar Bonilla is a political anthropologist and a professor of Latino and Caribbean studies. All right, that's the show. You've been listening to What Next. I'm Mary Harris. Also, I wouldn't be doing my due diligence here if I didn't thank my producers, Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, and Anna Martin. Also, you, person who listens to podcasts till the end, I have a little favor slash job for you. If you haven't written a rating or review for us on Apple Podcasts, go do it now. Give us however many stars you want. Tell us how you feel about what we're doing. We're reading it and it helps other people find us. All right, that's it. Talk to you tomorrow.